0: Yes,
1: please. I've been waiting a long time to say this, but welcome to Political Party Live, Mr. Beto O'Rourke. Thank
0: you so much. Thank you.
1: Yeah. Big honor to be here. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks, Thanks you, for thank having you. me out. So uh, before we get started, um, my name is Stacey Walker. I have the honor and the privilege to serve as a co-founder, co-host of this podcast, but also as your Lynn County Supervisor. And thank you. Thank you.
0: My name is uh, Simeon Talley. I live in Iowa City. I'm a small business owner and entrepreneur there. I came to Iowa. uh, I'm originally from Columbus, Ohio. I came to Iowa to work in politics on the 2008 Obama campaign, so this feels a little familiar. And again,
1: before we, uh, and I think you guys know uh, the congressman from uh, the great state of Texas here as our featured guest. But before we get on with the show, I just want to say thank you again to the great folks at Reagan for hosting us, uh, Little Village Magazine, uh, for their great partnership, all of our volunteers who make this happen. Uh, our producers, Sam Alexakis and Veronica Tesler and our 2019 fellow, uh, Casey Dresser. We are really appreciative of all the hard work that you guys put into this and make cool shit happen. Thank yeah. you so much. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. All right. So, so I'm going to get started, man. Um, why are you running for president?
2: I think like you, like everyone here. I want to do everything within my power, uh, as does my family, as do the people in my life and, and those for whom I care, and perhaps most importantly, my kids, given the challenges that we face. They've, they've never been greater, but I also feel that the opportunities have never been greater. This, this moment is going to bring out the absolute best in us, and I want to do everything I can, and I want to bring my capacity to lead, to bring people together. To ensure that this very divided highly polarized extremely partisan country is able to unify around the challenges and opportunities before us i want to make sure that we have an economy that works for everyone i want to know that if you are sick you will be able to see a doctor If your child needs to see a therapist you'll be able to afford to take her if you have a prescription to fill money will be no object in being able to do that and i want to know that in the 12 years that we have left to us, the scientists all agree, to meet the existential threat of climate change, that this country marshals every resource, does everything it can, not divided in half, not just one party and not just one person, though they are serving in the most important position of public trust, but all of us, through the great mechanism of this democracy, come forward and meet the challenge of our lifetimes, frankly, the challenge of humankind. I know that we can do it, but I know that we can only do it together. And I think my experience, the way in which I've served, the way in which I've campaigned in Texas, what I'm learning from you here in Iowa leads me to be able to help lead this country
0: at its moment of truth. You know you're getting peak beta when you get the hand movements. Um, I want to ask you a, um, a light-hearted question, and then we'll get into the serious stuff. Yeah, uh, We're in Iowa on St. Paddy's Day weekend. It's a Friday. This room is crowded. Uh, everyone in this room is presumably not drunk yet, <laughs> and they're all here to see you. There's a ton of fanfare, a ton of interest around your candidacy, but what's the weirdest thing to happen to you since becoming a national figure?
1: This is real hardball step. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know, um, people wearing t-shirts with your name uh, <laughs> on it uh, is, is amazing. Um, no, I, I just, um, I feel so extraordinarily lucky. Uh, and um, the, the campaign that we just ran and got to be a part of in Texas, this state that was thought to be so reliably read that it was written off. It it never really had a seat at the table the way that Iowa has a seat at the table because from the standpoint of the Electoral College and our national politics, it, it was already spoken for. The box was already checked. To see people defy their partisanship and the differences that would otherwise divide us and come together to do something absolutely exceptional and transformational in a state that before now ranked 50th in voter turnout not by accident, but by design, some people literally written out of their democracy, overcoming those obstacles to do something extraordinary. And we didn't win at the end of the day, but we got to be part of something far more important. There were folks who did win their races. I'm thinking of people like Colin Allred and Lizzie Fletcher. I'm thinking about the 17 African-American women who were elected to judicial positions (laughs) in Harris County alone, (laughs) who will... Absolutely, literally changed the face of criminal justice in this country. So, so getting to be a part of all of this, I, I, um, I just, uh, you know, I, I want to make the most of it. Um, but but it, as, as we uh, end this lighthearted section of, of <laughs> the podcast, I, I want to tell you, um, I, I've only been in the community for an hour and a half, um, but I'm already a big fan of Cedar Rapids as we were looking for a parking spot. <laughs> I found uh, the Analog Vaults record store, um, which, which happens to be uh, a, a short walk from EduSkate. Um, and, and got to meet the owners of both places, and I picked you all up some records. Oh, uh, wow. hope you don't mind me giving them to you. Um, the first one is uh, Santana 3. I don't know if anybody owns this record, uh, but it's a, it's a beautiful uh, album cover and has some amazing songs on it. Oh yeah! And then uh, this next one is a Texas treasure, "Asleep at the Wheel." I don't know if everybody knows wow. that one, um, but these records are for the both of you. Thank you for for having me on your show. That's a, yeah, that's yeah.
0: that's a first. That's, that is a, that's a yeah. first. So just one more quick support your question. local record shop. What's the what's the best thing you've eaten since you've been in Iowa so far, Beto?
1: Bonus points if it. Came with ranch dressing.
2: <laughs> I'm, I'm really embarrassed to tell you that um, my last two dinners have been at Subway um, <laughs> 12 inch wheat, tuna with green peppers, bell peppers, uh, yellow peppers, and, and onions. But I did get to eat at Sub Arena okay. in Fort Madison. Uh, and that may be, uh, no offense, Subway corporation, that may be the best Subway sandwich that I've eaten. I have not yet had a loose meat sandwich. Um, that's, that's coming up. Uh, maybe tonight. Um, stay tuned. Um, no, but, but folks have, have treated us really well. Uh, I've heard mixed reviews on Taco John's. Some say do it. Some say some say don't. The, the rule of thumb in El Paso is never eat Mexican food outside of El Paso, and so we, we may put that to the test on this visit. So,
1: I can't wait for all the think pieces that are going to come out assessing your campaign based off of your food choices. Right, right. That's the hard hitting stuff. A good friend of mine, Dr. Chloe Angel, uh, uh, sent me over this question, and I thought it was uh, really good and she wants you to outline for us, in as much detail as you can, or you feel comfortable, your top three progressive policy priorities.
2: Yeah. We have an immediate opportunity when it comes to ensuring the well-being of our fellow Americans. If we think about it, if you don't have access to health care, there's a chance that you're not gonna be well enough to finish your education. There's a chance that you're not gonna be well enough to go to work. There's a chance you're not going to be well enough to start your own business or host a podcast or write a poem or contribute in whatever way you can to the betterment not just of yourself and your family but of your community and of your country. Investing in healthcare, and I hear this from Republicans and Democrats and independents alike, is so foundational and fundamental to economic well-being and to literally the health of our communities. I want to make sure that we get to guaranteed, high quality, universal healthcare as quickly as we possibly can. Second, there also seems to be a building consensus around immigration reform, Uh, making sure that, for example, the more than one million dreamers are fellow Americans in all but the legal document that they lack are legalized in this country. are not sent back to a place whose language they do not speak, where they no longer have relatives, where if they are successful against those long odds, they'll be successful for that place, not this place, not our country. They should be made US citizens immediately. And there's much more to immigration, of course, including the original dreamers, the parents of those dreamers that I'm talking about, but that's a great place to start. And then this existential threat of climate change. Very little time remains to us, and we cannot be found wanting. Because if you have any fear of the judgment of your children, and I do of mine, if we do not act with everything that we've got in the next 10 years, and by the time Ulysses, my 12-year-old, is my age, it'll be far too late. And challenges of immigration, of economic opportunity, of health, of the very viability of the human race on this planet will no longer be within the control of the generations that follow us. This cannot be a Democrat versus Republican, rural versus urban issue. This has to be an American issue and then an American issue that helps us to lead the nations of this world together. Right now, we're the only one who's not a signatory on the Paris climate agreements. We used to be the indispensable nation. Now we're the lonely one. So we need to get back to our proper role, reassert our leadership on the global stage, and get this done. And last one, I know you said three, but here's what underpins all of that. It's our democracy, which is broken as it has ever been right now. The greatest mechanism for marshalling the genius, the ingenuity, the innovation, the resolve of the American people, 320 million plus, is a democracy. As Churchill said, and I'm paraphrasing, it's slow, it's frustrating, but there's been nothing better invented in the history of humankind. We have to make sure that we reduce and negate the influence of big money in politics. That's why I don't take any PAC contributions at all. (laughs) We have to end the practice of voter suppression. That 50th in the nation distinction that Texas had is because we drew people out of their democracy based on their race, voter ID laws that have successfully kept some people out of of the ballot box. So not only do we need to take big money out of politics, not only do we need a new Voting Rights Act for this country, we need to make it as easy as it possibly can be for every one of our fellow citizens to add their voice and their vision to this great democracy, the only way that we meet all of those other challenges. Fix this democracy, we can fix our country and we can help in fixing the world. Thanks for asking. wanna...
0: In preparation for, for our podcast and our interview with you, um, one of the things I found most interesting uh, about the discussion after you announced was sort of um, about what your policies would be. So thank you for outlining that. Thank Absolutely. you. But I think a lot of folks still want to know further, how would you govern? You know, what's your governing philosophy? Um, this, it's a crowded uh, primary field. You have sort of people staking out, whether they're progressive, whether they're moderate, whether they're centrist, somewhere in between, how would you govern as president to get some of those things done? So,
2: more than 20 years ago uh, in El Paso, I I worked with, (laughs) I I keep hearing, yes, (laughs) what what high school? Uh, Go Miners! yeah, thank (laughs) thank you for being here. Um, Started a small business, um, high tech, high skill, high wage, um, you know, it, it was, um, an endeavor of love, but it was one of the toughest things that I'd ever done meeting that payroll weekend week out, you know, exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, from there, as I got more engaged in the community, serving on the city council, a nonpartisan position in local government, where I had one employee in my city council office representing 80,000 constituents in the eighth district. So if you called because your trash did not get picked up if you called because you had a great idea for economic development for El Paso, and many people did, if you called because your neighbor's dog was barking, knowing full well there's nothing I can do about it, (laughs) there's a good chance that you would reach me. And it constantly reminded me of who it is that I served and to whom I was accountable. And I took that same spirit of accountability into Congress, where for six years I represented more than 750,000 people in El Paso, Texas. (laughs) <laughs> and and every single month, I held a town hall meeting. Um, all comers welcome, no holds barred. If you love me, uh, like my mom, if, if you were disappointed in a vote I'd taken, you would let me hear it. Um, and that, that level of accountability made me a better representative. Every vote I took, I thought about, how am I going to explain this to the people that I serve when they come to that town hall this month? Every piece of legislation that we talked about, I thought about how I could get it passed, and though I was in the minority for every one of those six years, I knew that if I came back and said, listen, we just wrote a bill to expand mental health care for veterans, but those darn Republicans won't let, it get us, won't let us get it passed. Donald Trump, I just can't work with the guy. We were able to find the Republican partners necessary to pass it in the House, pass it in the Senate, and have it signed into law by Donald J. Trump, thereby improving outcomes and saving lives. In other words, I'll work with anyone, anytime, anywhere, to advance, to advance the agenda of this country. And I will not distinguish based on party, or geography, or any other difference.
0: All of us count, and I'm counting on everybody. So what I, what I hear you saying is, and maybe this is sort of you know, how you're trying to distinguish yourself from the rest of the field, is that you, know, you believe that you're uniquely qualified, or even skilled to bring people together to get some of the th- these things done that have been done before. That's very interesting, because we've heard that before. Not too long ago, uh, a skinny guy <laughs> um, with a very short political resume, you know, ran for president and run named Barack Obama, and sort of the shadow of Barack Obama looms large over your candidacy. What do you make of those types of comparisons? Um, and I don't know if anyone else, anyone else is curious, but I am really, really, really curious about the conversation you two had yeah. after you ran for Senate. Is there anything you can share uh, w- with us about that conversation?
2: He's an extraordinary human being, um, the greatest president of my lifetime, um, and I, I have to be honest, I'm flattered by any comparison, but I know myself well enough that I come nowhere close. But but to sit with him, um, and I had met with him as a member of Congress, never... Um, one-on-one usually in a very large group I would be surprised if he knew who I was to, to be honest with you well, you were in fact, on
0: the Air Force one right? I, that's
2: true I, at, at the end of his administration uh, I got to travel to Vietnam with with the president that was a, a huge honor but I'll tell you one of the first times that I got to to meet him to actually shake his hand um, I, I, I'm not into the I wasn't into the celebrity aspect of it I, I thought hey we're a co-equal branch of government I'm a member of Congress he's a president you know there, there's got to be some distance there but every time that I would talk to a classroom in, in El Paso, a little kid would come up to me. They'd say, have you met the president yet? And so I thought, I got to do this. We were having an event at the White House, the Democratic caucus. And there's always, as a as president got up, he said, we'll have a happy hour in the White House. And they literally rolled out a cart of refreshments and you could have a beer or have a drink with the president. And there was a scrum of members of Congress surrounding him. And I thought, this is my chance. I got to go up and shake his hand. And I said, President Obama, and I extended my hand, and he met my hand, and our hands grasped in a handshake. And just then, (laughs) just then, someone tapped him on his back, and he turned around and he began a conversation still holding my hand and i'm thinking do do i continue to hold on to his hand or do i let go of his hand and 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 you just feel like everybody's eyes on you and i was just started to sweat and the conversation went on and on i think for 5 hours but may have been in reality maybe maybe closer to 2 minutes but um, that, that was my embarrassing first time that i shook, shook the, the 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 president's hand Meeting with him was a, 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 a huge, huge honor, and um, I don't want to betray his confidence, and and uh, I want to respect. Uh, his, his privacy, but, but that was an extraordinarily kind gesture after having just lost this, this Senate campaign um, to have the former president of the United States call me up in El Paso and kind of buck me up and say, hey, you, you really did a, a great job. And the next time you're in Washington, and I still had uh, a month and a half on my congressional term, next time you're in D.C., come by my office and see me. And, and I did. And um, it's just one of the things that I will treasure and cherish for the rest of my
1: life. Thank you for that. Yeah. So I wanna, I wanna touch on something that happened during your Senate uh, campaign. And I, and I have to read this question because I really wanna get it right. Yeah. So back when you were running uh, for the US Senate, you were asked at an event about your position on NFL athletes taking a knee during the national anthem. Now, most Democrats have been dodging the question or providing rather tepid responses, but instead of dodging the question, you tackled it head-on, framing it as a brave protest against police shootings. And I quote, nonviolently, peacefully, while the eyes of this country are watching these games, they take a knee to bring our attention and our focus to this problem to ensure that we fix it. That is why they are doing it, and I can think of nothing more American than to peacefully stand up or take a knee for your rights at any time, anywhere, and any place. Now, when so many politicians, including a lot of Democrats, were running from that issue because it's nuanced, because it's touchy and sensitive, you as uh, Jameel Hill in The Atlantic wrote, you took it head on. Why did you choose to do that? And is there a lesson in that response, which the rest of the country um, uh, applauded? And I think you had a monster fundraising uh, 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 session, I guess, after that. Is there a lesson there for politicians? So the first question, why did you respond that way? And what can be learned from that?
2: It's. The way I feel it's what came to mind. I had not been asked the question before we were at a a town hall, but but the subject matter focus of the town hall was education was public education. So I was um, well versed um, and read up on the questions I thought I would be asked and I was not expecting a question that was framed in, in the following way given the service of combat veterans and the sacrifice for those who put their lives on the line for this country, don't you think it's disrespectful for NFL players to take a knee during the national anthem? Um, And I said no, because I I don't think that um, it's mutually exclusive to honor those who have served and to include in those who have served not just those who put their lives on the line for this country, for which we are eternally grateful, especially those who paid the ultimate price, but also for those who gave their lives to this country in the civil rights struggles that have extended ever since and actually before the end of slavery. And they too sacrificed for us, and we honor both forms, every form of sacrifice, including those kids at the the lunch counter in Greensboro, North Carolina, including John Lewis on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, including Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta in 1968, including everyone who stood up or fasted or taken a knee to make sure that we do a better job in in this country. And so I I think we all have to have the courage of our convictions, and and we have to stand by what we believe. At the same time that we're open to listening to and recognizing the perspectives of others. And so in that answer, I tried to be as responsible Respectful to this person who, who came to a different conclusion than I did, and I think that's the way that, or that's the way I'd like to see our politics conducted, and, and to see our democracy thrive.
3: So,
0: to, to follow up on the discussion of race in America, um, hate crimes appear not to only be up in the United States, but across the world in certain countries. Uh, when our, when Donald, when a Democrat defeats Donald Trump our national, our international, our global nightmare will be over. <clears throat> but, but we'll still have to reconcile and do something with the rise of white nationalism, the rise of white supremacy. Right. How would you handle this? You're, you're
2: absolutely right that, that our rhetoric has consequences. Um, you refer to Mexican immigrants as rapists and criminals. Mexican-American kids are going to internalize that language. I know that from listening to those children in in my hometown. When you say that we need a Muslim ban in the United States of America, uh, the implication being that Muslims are inherently violent or dangerous or deadly to our fellow Americans. Um, I've met the parents of little kids who internalize that. They think they're in the wrong country, though they were born here. And it wouldn't matter if they weren't, as long as they're here, And as long as they're part of this country, they're just as American as anyone else. When you describe neo-Nazis and Klansmen and white supremacists as very fine people, uh, the countries of Africa as shithole nations, uh, the people from Haiti spreading AIDS in the United States, saying that you'd like more immigrants like those from Sweden, perhaps the whitest place on the face (laughs) of the planet today. Um, You've seen a... Significant rise in hate crimes in the United States of America over the last three years. On the day that the president enacted his executive order on banning Muslim travel to the United States, the mosque in Victoria, Texas, was burned down to the ground. I think that's a, a point that that is worth making right now when we think about the horrific attack that was borne by the people of New Zealand in Christchurch um, earlier today or, or or yesterday, and beyond expressing our compassion and sending our prayers and, and our thoughts and our goodwill and our strength, which we must, we also have to confront this racism, this xenophobia, this nativism, and this hatred, or, or else I'm, I'm confident it will consume us. And so calling it out is part of it, and then setting the example for how we want to treat one another. And And in that spirit, if you will allow me, um, there was a report that came out today um, that shared things that I had written as a teenager. Really hateful. Uh, really bad stuff. Uh, I'm mortified to read it now. Incredibly embarrassed. Um, but I have to take ownership of my words and understand the way that they make people feel when they read them now. Whatever my intention was uh, as, as a teenager, it doesn't matter. Um, and so um, I, I think... I'll just speak for myself. Uh, I have to look long and hard at my actions, at the language that I have used, um, and I have to constantly try to do better. Um, and, and, you know, I want to make sure that I do that before I ask others to, to do the same. So thanks for allowing me to, to answer that question and to include that as part of my answer.
1: Yeah. yeah. Appreciate that. Yeah. So, so as a follow-on uh, uh, to that, it is obvious a part of your personality is to be completely transparent. It was actually something that I think you hit on in the recent Vanity Fair article that was was published. Um, you you have this this authenticity about yourself. Um, you have opened up your life to the public in a way that most that would make most politicians uncomfortable. And I think in that article, you credited Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez with, uh, I, I think, uh, how'd you put it? She has freed herself from fear. Yeah. Um, by the way, she's opened herself up and her life. Um, why do you choose to do that? Why is that important?
2: Life is too short uh, to live in fear. And it, it doesn't mean that, that some things don't scare me. Um, I'll tell you from uh, my second day on the campaign trail, running, running for president. Um, there, there's a lot that can be terrifying uh, about this process. Um, leaving your kids, opening up yourself, uh, your entire life uh, to members of the press, as it should be. You know, not, not the enemy of the people, the best defense against tyranny. That's part of our process of democracy. But that, that can be... That can be tough, and I I don't blame people who who shy away from the spotlight, uh, who don't want to engage uh, at this level. Um, But you deserve to know what I think, um, what I feel, um, the way I respond to your questions, to your observations, the way I account for the mistakes that I have made in my life and then i trust your judgment and your wisdom uh, and you will select the best person possible to be our nominee and then to serve in the highest position of public trust in the land but i i I think um you know uh just my my wife uh amy when we decided together to run for senate um in early 2017 um she said you've got to run like there's nothing to lose and, and at the time, when my name recognition hovered around 1% in Texas, that, that seemed like a very easy proposition, when, when thanks to the people of Texas, our, our campaign really gained some traction and produced some momentum, and, and victory seemed ever more possible, and I had the instinct and impulse to be safe and to be closed and to be guarded. Amy reminded me, um, and, and really is the leader in, in our family, and is... Um, th- th- has the best judgment of of anyone I know. She reminded me, you've got to continue to run this way. You've got to serve this way. you just got to be this way. Um, And so I'm I'm doing my best, imperfectly for sure, but, but doing my best to be as
1: open as I possibly can. So you've introduced us on this podcast to your wife and your family, Um, and it's early, it's very early in this presidential campaign. But uh, recently, you drew some criticism uh, for a remark you made about sometimes helping to raise your kids. And while many will understand your remarks as acknowledging the hard work that your wife does for the family, I think it opened up some real conversations about a few things, particularly the role that women are expected to play in society, uh, when it comes uh, to taking a back seat to their partners' uh, career ambitions, but also the difference, uh, uh, the different way women are, who choose to run for office may be treated uh, uh, versus men. So, um, surely that is valid criticism. Uh, how, how would you respond to that, or what? What did that moment teach you?
2: Yeah, it, it's, it's absolutely valid criticism and it's constructive criticism. It, it, it has already made me a better candidate. Not only will I not say that again, um, but, but I'll be much more thoughtful going forward in, in the way that um, I talk about our marriage and also the way in which I acknowledge the truth of the criticism that I have enjoyed white privilege. Absolutely undeniable. Uh, As I've shared with with others and certainly became uh, a topic of conversation in the Senate campaign, I have been arrested twice in my life. Uh, One for attempted criminal trespass and another uh, more graver offense of driving while intoxicated. Those mistakes didn't end up defining me or narrowing my options in life. And it's not because I'm a great person or I'm a genius or I figured anything out. A lot of that has to do with the fact that I'm a white man. Uh, that I had parents who had the cash to post bail at the time. A a lot of people don't have that, and I don't think I I really recognized or understood that until I met those people, uh, talked to their families, understood better from the experiences of others how this criminal justice system works and how it doesn't work in this country. And and in terms of the opportunities that that women have, we we have a long way to go. Uh, I have got to do everything within my power to do my part, and there's much more that I can do. Much of it will be guided by the women in my life and the people whom I meet. Um, so, um, yes, I think, I think the criticism is is right on, and and my ham-handed attempt to try to highlight the fact that, that Amy has um, the lion's share of the burden in our family, that she actually works um, but is the primary parent in our family, especially when I served in Congress, especially when I was on the campaign trail, should have also been a moment for me to uh, acknowledge that that is far too often the case, Um, not just in politics, but just in in life in in general. So I I hope as I have been in some instances part of the problem that I can be part of the solution. And I stand very ready and very open uh, to those who can guide me to do a better job
0: going forward. So thanks for asking. Yeah. Yeah. Beto, I want to go back to uh, your decision and maybe more specifically how you came about making the decision to run for president, um, probably more so or just about any other candidate. Um, the, the, the time you took uh, to decide to run for office was heavily scrutinized, was talked about, uh, it was analyzed, you know, there was sort of all this fanfare about it. Um, the decision to run for president is a very important, serious thing. Um, how do you make important decisions? And I just want to quote you in your announcement speech. Mm. You say that we are truly now more than ever the last great hope of the earth, which is why you're running for president. So as president, um, as a candidate for president, how do you make truly important and challenging decision, decisions? And in, in
2: the first part of your question, asking about how we made the decision to run for, for president, uh, it's, it's not one that I had contemplated until fairly recently, um, and and you can tell from from my life that it has not been organized towards this destination or or. This I don't know. Goal. I think
0: being in a punk band was a, <laughs> yeah, was a good problem. Right. <laughs> um,
2: and you know, Amy, after our our Senate run and after the loss, uh, said before we consider anything else, um, let's. Let's just be together as a family, something we had not done in any concentrated way in, in a very long time. And it was it was the best decision that we could have possibly have made. And, and I think being with our kids and seeing how extraordinarily strong and resilient they are uh, as as kids are um, and uh, allowing Amy and I to get to the to the same place, to, to the same decision, not one trying to persuade the other. Um, and then having the kids without a sit-down conversation, Ulysses, Molly, and Henry, we're going to do this, or what do you think? Allowing them of their own volition to come forward and say, hey, Dad, um, I think you should do this, or hey, Dad, if you run, or hey, Dad, what would this be like if, if, if we were to run for, for president? That, that was really helpful in, in our thought process because my family is the most important thing to me. Our families are the most important things to, to us and, and I, I liken it to this this pull and this push. My kids pull me in. I don't want to leave. I love them so much. I, I'm lucky enough to live in one of the most beautiful communities on the planet. And, and I'm, I'm so fortunate and I, and I want to enjoy that. Um, but I'm also pushed out by them because I know that they will be counting on me to do everything within my power at this moment of truth for this country now and for them, their future and the kids that, that they may have. And so um, that, that's how we made the, the decision. Um, and I'm grateful to be in this race. I'm grateful that so many other amazing candidates are in this race as well. We are very, very fortunate. This may be the best field of Democratic candidates um, that, that, that I can remember, um, and it's a testament it's a testament not just to, to our party, it's, it's a testament to this country, um, that, that at this moment of need and truth, people are willing to step up. And so um, I, I wanna make sure, and you asked me how I would make decisions as president, I, I wanna make sure that, that I always um, acknowledge that there are people far smarter on me on almost any given issue, people who have different life experiences and perspectives, uh, all of that wisdom and experience and difference should be brought to bear on on the challenges we face that, that's that's how we call forth the true genius of this country that 's the way that i 'd want to serve as president
0: so it's, it's a it's a big it's a talented it's a diverse field what's your pathway to victory
2: being everywhere running a campaign for for everyone in every state in America. As, as I expressed earlier, far too often Texas did not matter. And I know from traveling every one of those 254 counties that everyone matters and everyone wants to know that they matter, no matter how red or blue, rural or urban. The same holds true for the, the country at large. There's a reason um, that the first day of the campaign was in southeastern Iowa. Uh, I wanted to go to communities that are far too often Overlooked um, there's a reason during the Senate campaign that I spent so much time in Kashmir gardens There are places in Texas so reliably blue or because of their racial demographic We feel that we can count on a vote or that it's already spoken for no one should be taken for granted uh, No one should be uh, assumed to have already made their decision to vote uh, a certain way I, I think running that way without packs powered completely by people having the courage of our convictions having the humility to to listen to and understand things from other people's perspective is not just the best way to run. I think it may be the only way to win and, and the best way to serve once in office.
1: So I, uh, I want to switch gears here a bit. It is not lost on me that we are three men sitting here uh, and half of the country... Um, uh, are women right? And there are a lot of issues in this presidential campaign that will be important to women. So I guess kind of a, a multi-part question here: um, How do you see yourself being advocate and ally uh, to women? Uh, and where do you stand on issues that we have heard are important uh, to women, uh, namely uh, reproductive rights? We know that this administration um, has put a full-throated assault on uh, sort of a, women's, a woman's agency and self-determination and their right to choose what happens to their body. How are you going to address that?
2: It's a really great question. I, I would begin with the premise that, that every issue is a woman's issue. Uh, it, it's, tar, it's hard to, to look past the intersection of, A woman's issue, uh, an economic issue, uh, a democracy issue, um, a health care issue. Um, When women still earn a fraction of the pay that men earn for the same work in the same positions, we have a problem that is for the entire country to solve because we're losing out on the full benefit and we're being patently unfair in the process. When women are unable to make their own decisions about their own bodies, not only does that jeopardize their health care, it does so for their family and for the communities in which they live. Um, When I talk about universal, guaranteed, high-quality health care, I I mean primary health care for men and women, I mean mental health care for men and women, and I mean reproductive health care for women and for families. Um, so, so that's an incredibly in, important issue as, as well. And then in terms of the democracy issues, um, I'm grateful for organizations like Emily's List and Annie's List in Texas that ensure more women hold positions of public trust and are in power because it empowers the United States of America. And again, I think it is testament to the success, uh, and we still have a long ways to go, that this country is making towards that end to have the kind of democratic field that we have right now with some extraordinarily talented candidates. So a lot of work left to do, um, but all of those issues important, and I'm grateful for the leadership that so many of these women are providing right now.
0: You guys, yeah, fuck you guys clap. Yeah. <clears throat> I want to talk about the the state of our the political discourse in our country right now. Uh, admittedly, I spend way too much time on Twitter. <laughs> I think myself and Stacy are checking Twitter as we have this conversation right now. Uh, I, I, I keep telling myself that Twitter isn't real life, but I'm incredibly disheartened um, by the way we have political discussion, political debate in this country, po- particularly with people we don't agree with or people who don't look like us. Yeah. Um, it often feels like or the conversation devolves into a political death match, a zero-sum game. Um, and I would say that the right more often than the left, I think argues in bad faith. You know, As president, how would you fix this?
2: We've got to lead by example. Um, And and I want to make sure that I always speak well of and do my best to lift up uh, people, even other candidates who are seeking the same nomination that I am. I just count ourselves lucky um, that that we we have the kind of field that we have today. Um, We should never demean or vilify or speak ill of others who are running for these offices, even if they're on the other side of the aisle. Not only is that, I believe, the right way for us to act, um, it it is perhaps the only way for us to accomplish our goals. I mentioned serving in the minority every single year in Congress. If all I did was give speeches about how bad those Republicans are and how they hate poor people, and they don't want you uh, to have health care, and they don't want to address any of the urgent issues before us, There may be some truth to some of those things, for sure, right? Um, But not every Republican matches that description. There are many who, in good faith and goodwill, were willing to find the common ground to get some things done. And that's how we were able to accomplish anything of any significance. So the respect with which we speak to and of each other, our ability to um, disagree vehemently, but not violently, um, that's part of the genius of this country and in our democracy, and we lose it at our peril, and we absolutely, you're right, it, it is as bad as I can remember it being, we absolutely have to get it back, and we have to lead by example.
1: So I wanna move, if we can, to rather rapid-fire questions, because I wanna leave enough time to take some questions from this audience. Um, You kind of touched on this uh, issue when we had the conversation about white supremacy uh, earlier on in the show, Uh, but I woke up to the news that 49 people were massacred in New Zealand, and it was a shock to that country, because that's not common in most other parts of the world. But here in America, we have had so many mass shootings at such high frequency that it almost feels like we're used to it, that it doesn't shock us anymore. So what can we do as a country to course correct uh, on the issue of sensible gun reform?
2: If, If you remember the horrific school shooting in Santa Fe, Texas, And in the immediate aftermath of that, uh, a reporter, TV reporter, asks one of the students who survived the shooting, were you surprised, were you shocked that this gunman entered your school and began to shoot at and kill your fellow students? And she said, no, I kind of thought this was going to happen at some point. I had a chance to meet with her uh, and her father, other students who survived and the parents of those students who lost their lives. And they were able to answer the question you just posed. And they perhaps have the best basis in this conversation of any American. They said that every single one of us who buys a firearm should go through a background check, universal without exception. They reminded me that in states that have adopted universal background checks, we've seen a near 50% reduction in gun violence, lives saved, outcomes improved. Um, but there's a young gentleman who is running for city council in Houston, and I believe he is all of 20 years old right now, another survivor of another school shooting. And Marcel said, but Beto, I also want you to know that as sensational, as horrific, and as tragic as these school shootings are, there are people who are killed in America every single day who do not even make the paper or the news. And I don't know if it is because... They are African-American, and it happens one or two at a time. But for whatever the reason, to your point, we have become numb to their deaths. And we can either accept that another 30,000 of our fellow Americans will die to gun violence this year. We can either treat it as a force of nature or think that we're somehow deserving of this, that we're wrong, we're bad, we're evil. Or we can acknowledge that this is a human-caused problem with a human solution. So these kinds of ideas, universal background checks, locker laws, red flag laws, these were all ideas that came out of that Santa Fe roundtable that we had. They all make sense to me. And this one, a little bit more controversial. And listen, I respect you if you come down differently on this side, uh, on on another side of, of this issue. We allow people in this country to buy weapons, that were designed, engineered, and sold to the United States military for the express purpose of killing people as effectively as possible, in as great a number as possible. And an AR-15 gunshot wound, that high-impact, high-velocity round, will blow a hole through your back the size of an orange. You will bleed to death before Anybody can get to you and save your life because that's exactly what it was designed to do, to keep that enemy soldier down and not claim the life of one of our own. Now, if you own an AR-15, keep it. Continue to use it responsibly and safely. I just don't think that we need to sell any more weapons of war into this public unless we expect to see more gun violence going forward.
1: Your intrepid staff is telling me I've got to wrap this up so we can get to our question and answer session. Uh, and you're probably expecting uh, the most well-thought-out question ever, but I'm going to throw a curveball at okay. you. When I meet really interesting people, um, what I like to know is what are you reading right now, what are you watching on TV, mm. and what's at the top of your playlist? What are you listening to? Whoa! Um, It's pretty. It's a brilliant question, if I say so myself.
2: It's really good. Um, So I'm I'm reading two books. Um, One, Uninhabitable Earth, which I I highly recommend to to everyone. It, It really clearly lays out the consequences of the inaction thus far in this country. Um. Uh. And uh, it, it, it is powerful, and, and it will galvanize you. And I hope it galvanizes this country. The other is a book that was written a, a while ago. Uh, um. It's it's a collection of interviews with Joseph Campbell uh, about the the power of myth and the universality of myth across cultures and civilizations. And it's just it's great. It takes me out of the immediate moment and and takes me uh, somewhere else. Um, I listen to a lot of different music, uh, just saw Willie Nelson recently, so I've been listening to a lot of Willie Nelson. Um, Joan Jett is a, a, a classic favorite of mine, so um, whenever I need to get pumped up, uh, I'll listen to some, some Joan Jett. The, the Clash may be my, my favorite band uh, uh, of all time. Um, in, in EduSkate, uh, one after another, I heard the Bad Brains, the best band to ever come out of Washington, D.C. Um, I, I heard uh, the Clash play, and then I heard the Misfits from Lodi, New Jersey. So th- those are some bands that I've heard just just recently. And uh, th- your last question was, uh, music. What, what am I watching? Uh, you know, uh, I'm just going to give you the, the honest answer, uh, Shits Creek, um, which <laughs> uh, is... They can get 20 minutes in, and uh, again, kind of it, m- maybe not in the same way that that Joseph Campbell transports me somewhere else, but it it takes me somewhere else, and and it's 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 pretty funny.
1: So as we are getting ready for our uh, Q and A that our producers will run, I'm going to ask you one more question. I know, I know, I know. I'm sorry, Bree. Hey. I'm sorry, Norm. It's all right. Um, we tend to have a listenership that is on the younger side we've got a lot of uh, a lot of young people in the room too folks who will be the next generation of leaders what is if if you could give them one piece of advice what do you say to that next generation of leaders
2: yeah so i I agree with your description and i i would probably add to that 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 they are our, our current generation of leaders this this issue of gun violence in the country the leadership on that has not been people my age, 46 years old. Although there are lots of great 46-year-old people out there. Take no offense. It's, it's, and, and lots of moms out there. Moms demand action. I, I, I love you. But, but the young people um, who are not old enough to vote but ask me, why in the world did I just go through an active shooter drill at my school? Try answering that question and saying that we, we just have to improve mental health care and stop video games and, and play, pin the blame on, on Hollywood or send our thoughts and, and prayers. They, they want real action. Um, you know, I, I talked about um, the young men and women in, in Greensboro in in 1960. I think about the young men um, storming Normandy. Um, you know, uh, ha- half not even half my age, willing to, in many cases, giving their life. So I, w- I would say to the young people, don't don't ever allow anyone to to sell you short. Don't don't wait to become the leader. You are that leader right now. Almost any historic important change that's been obtained in this country, the vanguard has always been the young people of this country. They're impatient with our inaction um, and their understanding that they more than I will bear the consequences of the decisions that we make or fail to make there's an urgency and a power to that it is beautiful and I want to make sure that it is brought to bear on the challenges and opportunities that we have in this country right now So,
1: thank you very much thank you very much Okay, we are gonna take a few questions from the audience. We have our producers who will be traveling around with the microphones. Please make sure it is a question and not a soapbox statement. We, ain't nobody got time for that. Um, We'll start, uh, Casey, right here.
3: Hi, Uh, my name is Sophia Mahaffey. I sit on a school board locally. Uh, We are discussing at our school board meetings the current crisis of mental health, particularly in terms of youth uh, considering suicide. Uh, What do you see as the role um, at that level of government, if anything, in helping to curb the mental health crisis we're dealing with?
2: Thank you for your service. Thank you for asking the question. Uh, We lost around 150,000 of our fellow Americans last year, to drug overdose, deaths, and to suicide. Um, The mental health care needs of our fellow Americans don't begin when they're 18 years old or when they are adults. Um, They can begin uh, when they're in kindergarten or pre-K. One of the best solutions to the challenge that you pose that I have seen in our public schools is the, in in Texas, I've heard them referred to as complete schools, in much the same way that we focus on that child's education, uh, learning to read and to write and to add up and subtract. And the way in which we have now realized that in order to be Uh, able to to learn, you've got to have a full meal in your system, and we have free and reduced breakfast and lunches. Um, These complete schools are now providing mental health care and primary health care services for their kids, acknowledging that the federal government has failed in its responsibility to them, but that cannot be an excuse for not being there for those kids right now. Um, so, So I don't expect local school districts to continue to carry that burden alone. They should not. The property tax base is not deep enough to shoulder that burden alone. The federal government absolutely has to step up. And the ultimate, Solution to this, as I said earlier, I believe, is guaranteed high quality universal health care. That includes mental health care, and it starts at year zero for, for every child. But in the short term, let's support these complete schools that have mental health care services and counseling. Thank you for your service. Yeah.
3: Hi, Beto. Thank you so much for coming. Um, my name is Maddie, and I work for Planned Parenthood here in Eastern Iowa.
2: Thank you. Yeah.
3: Thank you supporting a woman's right to choose, pro-choice, all those great things. I understand that we addressed it a little bit earlier, but I wanted to dive into it a little bit deeper. Yeah. Um, The Trump and and Pence administration's most recent attack on women's health care is that they blocked Title X funding across the country. So for those who aren't familiar, it's designated family planning grants by county across the nation. And it's it, in this blocking, it is um, a domestic gag. So if a provider simply speaks the word abortion to a patient, that, that funding will be revoked. Um, that is not comprehensive health care. Um, that is not Non-judgmental, compassionate healthcare. So, I guess, what long-term changes, if you were elected president, would you try to institute to provide, promote, and protect a woman's right to choose?
2: Yeah. First of all, uh, thank you for what you do, and and through you, let me let me thank Planned Parenthood for for what that extraordinary organization does, and, and let me uh, begin with the context of Texas, where that state legislature has successfully shut down so many family planning clinics, that some people have to drive to other states or just don't get healthcare at all. Um, We have a maternal mortality crisis in this country. It is especially deadly in Texas, and it is especially deadly if you are a woman of color in Texas. It is ground zero for that crisis right now. We are literally losing lives because we are foregoing the investment in a cervical cancer screening, in prenatal care, in informed family planning decisions, in being able to see a provider at all. So, so we're talking about healthcare at, at its most fundamental. When I talk to people um, across the state of Texas uh, who may not agree with me on every position and may not agree with my stand on reproductive rights when, when I lay it out in that way um, when, when I talk about the lives that we are losing and the health care that women are missing out on I begin to I think find the common ground from from which we can, Uh, act. And so uh, you ask how I would lead on this issue. I would want to make sure that we begin with the facts, that we share with people what's what's at stake, and then at the end of the day that we act and, and protect those rights for the women and the families in this country. And by the way, that we understand that one of the consequences of the next election are the future vacancies on the Supreme Court. And despite what was decided in 1973, and what has been the law of the land ever since, um, that's not set in stone, and it could be overturned by a future court. So, so literally, generationally, in every way that counts, including this one, um, this next election could not be more important. So thanks again for what you do.
4: One of the better things that's come about the last three years is a greater attention to uh, gerrymandering and the systemic rigging of elections in several states, particularly Wisconsin, which is now in the, gone to the Supreme Court. As president, what would you do to combat gerrymandering based on race and other reasons?
2: I mentioned earlier Texas uh, until 2018 when my fellow Texans took matters into their own hands, ranked 50th in voter turnout by design. And in 2017 alone, the courts found four separate times that the state legislature had drawn people out of their congressional district. They had cracked and packed congressional districts solely based on the color of the skin or the country of national origin of the people in those districts. Literally drew them out of a reason to vote drew them out of their democracy, proved that some people's votes counted for more than others. That's what led to us being 50th in the nation. It's not that we love our democracy any less. So a new Voting Rights Act that acknowledges that in Texas and many of the states of the former Confederacy, we have systemic racism in our, vote, in, our, in, our, in our voting access. We have voter ID laws in Texas. So check this out. You can use your concealed carry permit, to prove who you are at the ballot box, but you cannot use your student ID from UT or Texas Southern to prove who you are at the ballot box. It shows you who is supposed to and who is not supposed to vote in Texas. So we have to take this stuff head on, but I also just wanna say, that we don't have to wait until 2021 to begin acting on this. As we were able to demonstrate in Texas, though those obstacles and barriers are absolutely in place right now, and we should call attention to them, we can also, to some large degree, transcend them when we set our minds to it. And so I I wanna make sure that in this next election, all of us do that, regardless of who the candidate is. It's, It's incumbent upon all of us to make sure that everybody can vote. Thanks for asking the question.
4: Hi, Beto. Uh, thanks for being here. Uh, it's a pleasure to having you. Um, my name is Lamit Rahun, and uh, currently I'm a, an AmeriCorps member, and I work in refugee resettlement. So this year will be the lowest number of refugees that the United States will admit in history. Mm. Um, I've got a two-part question. Um, the first question is, As president, um, the president determines the number of people that are admitted every year. Uh, What will you do to ensure that the United States, one, is a place of welcome, and two, that is a safe place for everybody to seek refuge, uh, regardless of where you come from or what you believe. Second part of the question (laughs) is, what will you do to ensure funding and continue to support programs that are uh, available for national service uh, to give opportunity for young people who are rising or seeking a career uh, in public service so that they're able to build their community and also serve uh, nationally if, for example, they may not be able to go into service uh, in the civil service.
2: Great questions. Um and if you'll excuse 10 seconds of pandering, you have an amazing audience. You have school board trustees, folks who work at Planned Parenthood, those who resettle refugees. Thank you all for your service and the great example that you provide here. You know better than I do that that refugees are among the most heavily scrutinized and vetted uh, of immigrants to to this country, um, and you also know, we all know, that the primary beneficiary of their presence in this country is not the refugee and their family, it is all of us. Whatever genius thing they are going to do in their life, whatever they're going to contribute, they're going to do it here in America for this country and the communities within which they reside. We should also remind ourselves, it should be obvious but it bears repeating, we are a country of people from all over the world. Immigrants, asylum seekers, refugees, people who came here in bondage as slaves and literally built the country. People who could trace their family tree back 10,000 years in the United States of America, who had their land taken from them. As John Lewis often says, we all came here on a different ship at a different time but now we're all in the same boat. So I want to make sure to your specific question that we raise the caps on the number of refugees that we can take. Um, You can probably tell me uh, last year, I think it was 43 refugees from Syria, a country that has produced hundreds of thousands, well more than a million refugees altogether, 43 in the wealthiest, the most powerful country on the face of the planet. Some people are losing their stuff over the fact that there were 400,000 apprehensions at the U.S.-Mexico border last year, so many of them asylum seekers. If you think about it, there were more than 1.6 million apprehensions in the second year of the George W. Bush administration. It's a fraction of what we had before, and right now they are kids, and they are kids, if they're lucky, with their moms, who traveled 2,000 miles to come to this country on foot, and atop, not inside, of a train called the Beast or La Bestia. What would compel you to travel with your little girl for 2,000 miles? What would motivate you to place her into the hands of a smuggler or a coyote? You do that not because you're bad, not because you're trying to take advantage of this country, take anything from anyone else. You're doing this because it is the only choice you have. It's the one thing that I would do for my child if placed in the same position. So recognizing our common humanity. And ensuring that we act accordingly is in the best traditions of the United States. And I want to make sure that our policies and our laws reflect our values and our reality. So thank you for being a great example for us. Thank you. Really appreciate that. Peace. All right.
1: Beto, uh, you you gave a shout-out to this audience, and I'm really, really glad you did that. We do have a diverse uh, audience here, and the listenership and follow uh, the followers of this program uh, is awesome. But more importantly, there's a lot of media here. I hope you all will start to tell the story. Uh, anytime, you know, I read those stories about why Iowa shouldn't be in the position that it's in, to have such an influential uh, impact on picking the next president. It's not reflective of the rest of the country. I Mm -hmm. think if you look around this room and you look at the faces here, the stories, uh, the occupations, the narratives, I think uh, you all in the back of the room can help us tell the story that Iowa uh, is real and it's serious and we ain't here to play and we deserve our spot on the map. So, Ladies and gentlemen, that is our show for tonight. Thank you so much for coming out. Give it up for Beto O'Rourke. Thank
3: you.